you'll hear truly scary stories that you cannot get out of your head. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I first saw the man on a train on a Tuesday. I had been taking the 6.30 train into work every morning for two years, but I finally got promoted out of that horrid early shift, and so I'd switched to heading in at a much more reasonable 2.30pm. I think most people would prefer the 7-3 to shift, but I'm not most people, and have always been more suited for a life that kicks off at night. I've always had a contentious relationship with the sun, Maybe it was my mother's perpetual insistence that I play outside when all I wanted to do was read indoors, but the sun has always felt so bossy to me. I prefer the rain or the darkness. I like weather that gives you permission to stay inside or allows you to hide on the occasions that you do go out. The sun is so pushy and revealing, and I'm just not that interested in participating in the activities that it inspires. And so... I'm very content to go into work in the hours just before the sun starts to set and emerge long after that opinionated bitch has gone to bed. My first day on the new shift was on a Tuesday and I was so happy to enter a nearly empty train after years of fighting the morning commuter crush. I couldn't remember the last time I had a bench to myself on my way to work and so I chose one as far away from the other passengers as possible and settled in to listen to some music to pass the 30 minutes it would take to get to the office. When I'd taken the virtual secretary job after I was laid off at the magazine, I'd only intended to stay a month or two while I found a new magazine and needed a writer, or was able to cobble together enough freelance work to survive, but somehow I'd allowed myself to get lulled into the monotony of mindless employment to the point that I feared I'd become irrelevant. The longer my writing samples sat unsent in my hard drive, the less likely it was that I'd ever return to journalism. And the thing that surprised me the most was that I didn't really mind. I'm not sure if it was the mental shift so many of us went through in the pandemic, or if I'm just not cut out for writing, but I keep waiting to feel some type of urgency to write again, and it it just hasn't come. When I was in college, I imagined myself busting down doors to demand information that the public was entitled to, I fantasized about the myriad ways I would put myself at risk to uncover the truth or sway the populace or take down evil empires. But that version of me never showed up. The reality was that a professor had recommended me for my first job, writing human interest for a free weekly publication. And I'd done that until the internet killed the need for that type of media and the paper closed. After that, I... I sort of rolled over and died professionally and I was surprised how little I cared. I still hadn't reconciled if the fantasy version of my future was actually who I'd wanted to be or was just who I thought I was supposed to be because of parental or societal pressure. But I knew for sure that long comfy train rides and mindless shifts and call centers suited me just fine at this stage in my life. I didn't notice the man for most of the ride. 
He was just another invisible middle-aged white man in sensible clothes on his way to wherever middle-aged white men in sensible clothes go. No one ever stops to contemplate an aging man in khakis and a button-up shirt. No one wonders about his hopes and dreams. No one assumes there is a deep internal world swirling and multiplying beneath his practical haircut and behind his unremarkable eyes. The man was sitting toward the middle of the train, and it wasn't until a few minutes before my stop was approaching that I noticed him at all. Uh, I always perk up when it's close to time to deboard, and I was in the process of repacking the few items I'd taken out of my backpack at the beginning of my commute when I registered his presence. <laughs> it's funny how a certain type of brain will take inventory of all the people and things around you without you being aware that it's doing that until the information is useful. Plenty of people had come and gone during my commute, and as I was distractedly packing up to get off, my brain sent me the signal that the man had been there since I'd gotten on the train. And as far as I was aware, he hadn't moved an inch. I set down my bag and committed my full attention to studying him from the safe distance between us. He was wearing the middle-aged uniform of chinos, a pale blue button-up collared shirt and medium brown lace-up shoes. He had the same haircut that every father and uncle, <laughs> anyone in my extended family had, boring and impeccably tidy. And his face showed the soft signs of a man who was aging, but has taken relatively good care of himself throughout his life. I, I saw the same man a million times a day as I traversed the city streets. But the thing that stood out about this man was that he wasn't moving. And I don't mean that he refused to give up his seat to more worthy passengers or that he didn't fidget like those of us with overactive brains. I mean he wasn't moving an inch. In the 30 minutes I'd shared the train with him, he hadn't blinked or twitched or sighed or shifted. Not once. He was sitting with his back as straight as a back can be, with his hands palms down on each of his thighs and his head facing forward as if he took great interest in watching the inner workings of the underground as it passed us by. Before I could make any more assessments of the man, the chime sounded overhead, and the immaculately polite woman's voice announced that my stop had arrived. I stole one last glance at the immobile man as I exited into the station and started the final short stretch of my commute to the office, where I wouldn't think another thought about the man for the rest of the night. The only way I've been able to live off of a call center salary in one of the most expensive cities in the world is to do most of my socializing while at work. Lucky for me, call centers attract personalities kindred to my own, <laughs> and so I've had no trouble making friends with the fellow weirdos who are content spending their days in dark cubbies in the basement of an office complex. My work bestie, Madeline, had been switched to night shifts two months before me, and we greeted each other with a celebration suited for a soldier reuniting with his wife and children. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so glad you're finally here! Madeline shrilled as we broke free from an extended hug and she grabbed my arm to drag me through the office for an unofficial tour of my new co-workers. Stay clear of Emma, she said in a low voice, and pointed to a very studious-looking twenty-something sitting suspiciously upright in a station. She's a drag and a tattletale. We love Devon, she instructed with a gesture in the direction of a young man who looked far too cool and complex to be working here. He's too special to be here much longer, so I'm savoring every second, she sighed. I nodded, understanding that beautiful people like Devon would grace us with their presence from time to time, but never for very long. 
most of them were fresh out of art college or experiencing a rare lull in modelling gigs, and it was only a matter of time before their luck would turn and they'd be back to their charmed lives. The call centre plebeians they'd known for a moment would be forgotten until someone would ask them about the worst job they'd ever had at a party or a mixer, and would make a brief appearance in their fabulous lives just to be discarded again in their next breath. Devon flashed us an extraordinary smile, and Madeline lobbed back an enthusiastic wave. She started to pull me into the staff break room and waved at the rest of the people in the cubicles dismissively. Everyone else is great, but you'll meet them later. Let's get caffeinated and catch up before we clock in. She glanced at her phone and smiled. Eight minutes is more than enough time. Four minutes for my wasteland of a life, and four for yours. She smiled her most wicked smile and pulled out the ridiculous cat mug she knew was my favourite. I hadn't been able to see Madeline since she'd switched shifts because she had to be in bed by the time I was getting off of work, and vice versa. And it was wonderful to be reunited. As I watched her prattle on about some dumb boy she'd recently auditioned for the role of serious boyfriend, it struck me that she might have been the best friend I'd ever had. Close work friendships sneak up on you because you start out as friends of convenience and I had no idea when the transition to actual friend occurred. But I was delighted to have her back and I had a sneaking suspicion that she was a big part of the reason I'd stayed so long. Her warmth and wit were enough to sustain and entertain me and I couldn't imagine spending my days without her, no matter how compelling the assignment. The eight minutes flew by, and soon I was surrounded by the familiar fabric-covered walls of my cubicle, answering calls for various businesses and servicing or redirecting them accordingly. I landed a call from my favorite customer almost immediately. Her name was Lucinda, and she was an 86-year-old woman who had moved to the city from Texas in her 20s and had somehow maintained the stereotypically enormous personality of most women from Texas, despite the 60 years in the company of her British peers. "'Alex, is that you?' she exclaimed the moment I ended my usual greeting. Her accent was an insane mix of a thick southern drawl with notes of British high society, and it always improved my mood." Oh, honey, thank God. I don't have it in me today to deal with any of those others. Last time I called, the dimwit I spoke to scheduled Priscilla's hair appointment for February 5th, 2025. And let's be clear, I am good at a lot of things, but one thing I don't have is the ability to travel into the future for the sake of Priscilla's monthly wash and blow drive. For crying out loud, what is wrong with people? Priscilla was Lucinda's 15-year-old Maltese, and while I'd never seen a photo of the animal, I couldn't imagine she had much hair left to style at that age. Regardless of the dog's condition, Lucinda insisted on twice-monthly trips to the groomers because, according to Lucinda, if Priscilla could talk, she would demand she looked her best. Alex, that dog has a nose so high she could drown in a rainstorm, honest to God, Lucinda had said on our very first call, and I'd loved her ever since. I pulled up the schedule for her preferred pet grooming service and made her appointment as she relayed the run-in she'd had with her downstairs neighbor earlier in the week in hilarious detail. Uh, She'll think twice before she accuses old Lucinda of touching her packages, I can tell you that much. I mean, honestly, my late husband left me more money than I could spend in ten lifetimes, and for her to think that I'd have anything to do with her ratty Amazon deliveries. Honestly... Lucinda took a rare breath, and I took the opportunity to let her know that she was all set, and that it was great to hear from her. "'You too, honey,' she drawled, 
and then immediately shifted to scolding Priscilla in the background for peeing on something expensive as the call disconnected. (laughs) I giggled to myself as I connected the next call. It came through on the line designated for the law office we serviced, and so I answered, Jones, Taylor and Associates, how may I help you? No one returned my greeting. I had intercepted plenty of prank calls over the years, but what I heard on the other line was next level. I muttered to myself after the line went dead. I pulled off my headset and peered over the cubicle to where Madeline was working next to me. Do you get a lot of prank calls on this shift? I asked, and shivered a little from the residual creepiness of the recording. Oh yeah, she nodded and snapped her gum loudly. Just wait till it's dark outside. We get every kind of weirdo calling in after that. Oh, good. (laughs) Something to look forward to. I rolled my eyes and cracked a smile. Yeah, if you're lucky, you'll get one of those perverts in the other line. Madeline wiggled her eyebrows up and down suggestively. Lord knows it's been a while since you've gotten any action. I slapped her arm playfully. She squealed, which elicited a dirty look from Prissy Emma, and then seamlessly took her next call while shooting a final wiggle of her brows in my direction. The rest of the shift went off without a hitch. There was a big rush from 5 to 7pm as people got off of work and called to schedule their various appointments on their way home. And then it was all but dead after that. Madeline confirmed that was always the case, as we sipped another cup of tea later in the day, and I was even more excited about my placid new work shift. It was going to suit me just fine. Taking the train home that night was even more effortless than it had been that afternoon. The station and the carriages were almost completely empty, as the people who had commuted home from work had long cleared out, and it was still too early for the bar crowd. I made it most of the way home in a carriage by myself, listening to my music and checking the internet during the intermittent times when the signal was strong enough. About five minutes from my stop, a group of very drunk and very rowdy men in their twenties boarded, and I immediately prickled with the fear that comes from being around very drunk and very rowdy men in their twenties. Before they could spot me, I switched carriages to evade their inevitable attempts to engage me in obnoxious conversation, or worse. As the door to the carriage sealed shut behind me, I was stuck, motionless, by what I found on the other side. The unmoving man from the morning commute was in the adjoining carriage, in the same outfit and the exact same position that he'd been in nine hours earlier. He sat and stared at nothing and I stood and watched him, barely breathing in anticipation of him keeling over and dying or jumping up and lurching at me at any moment. I studied his eyes which looked bright and engaged enough, despite the fact that they didn't move or blink. Oh, I get it, I exclaimed as it dawned on me that this was the train, and people use the train for all kinds of weird self-expression. This is some kind of art installation, right? I swiveled my head around the carriage looking for a hidden camera that must be installed nearby to capture passengers' reactions to the frozen man. What is this about, the evils of capitalism? 
I asked as I walked over and plopped down right next to him. He still didn't move a muscle as I studied his face from just a few inches away. That's pretty remarkable, I murmured. You must have had to really practice to not blink like that. I shivered a bit. My eyes are drying out just thinking about it. So, you're supposed to be the reflection of the rest of us, or something, right? Mindlessly heading to and from work every day, slaves to the man, or whatever. The man continued to stare, refusing to break character, and I patted his thigh gently in an attempt to get him to laugh or squirm a bit. How long do you have to do this? I asked, and waved a hand in front of his eyes. 24 hours, 3 days, a week would probably be the most impactful, huh? You won't go viral if you just sit here for a day, but a whole week? Now that's how you get the people talking. There was still no response from the man, not even a visible swallow. And I glanced at the board that tracked the progress of the train. Well, this is my stop, old boy. I gave him another thigh pat and stood up. It was great talking to you. Good luck with the art career. I gave him a thumbs up and the train pulled into the station as I turned towards the doors to exit and left the man alone in his perpetual inactivity for the second time that day. Just before I stepped off of the train, I snapped a photo of him to commemorate the interaction. If he was going to commit himself so fully to his art, the least I could do was give him a little attention. The man wasn't on the train during my commute into work the next day. I peered in all of the carriages as it left the station to see if I could spot him, but it was too hard to see clearly as it gained momentum and disappeared into the dark mouth of the subterranean. My shift passed like a thousand had before it, A long stream of monotonous calls punctuated by cups of tea and jokes with Madeline. (laughs) An hour before it was time to clock out, I got another horrible prank call. I answered the line for the lawyer's office like I always did. Jones, Taylor and Associates, how may I help you? And just like the day before, I was greeted by the soft static of the awful recording. As the call ended, I sat transfixed and deeply disturbed for several minutes, and I almost screamed when Madeline popped over the side of the cubicle and grabbed me from behind. Jesus Christ, you scared me! I nearly shouted and clutched my chest as I turned toward her. I got another one of those dreadful prank calls. This one was even more disturbing than yesterday's. I shuddered in an attempt to shake off the ominous feeling, and then returned my attention to my friend. Oh, sorry to hear that. People can be such creeps. She wrinkled her nose to accentuate her point and then shifted back to her usual sunny disposition. So, anyway, Devon and I are getting drinks after this. You want to join? I nodded, still a little stunned by the call, then cleared my voice and answered, Yeah, absolutely. I could definitely use a drink. 
fabulous. Madeline clapped her hands gleefully, then disappeared behind the wall. Devon insisted that the three of us take the train across town to try a new spot his friend had opened, so the three of us walked to the station together. I would have preferred the cosy dive that Madeline and I frequented that was within walking distance to the office, but I reminded myself that Devon would be gone before I knew it, so I should take advantage of the perks of being friends with the beautiful people when I had the chance. When the train arrived, I stepped on and immediately spotted the man, sitting stick still in the same outfit that he'd been in the two times I'd seen him the day before. Oh my god, it's him! I exclaimed and grabbed Madeline's arm with one hand while pointing at him with the other. It's who? she asked and looked in the man's direction. This guy I keep running into, he's doing some kind of art project or something. This is the third time I've seen him and he's always wearing that outfit and he doesn't move at all. Like, at all. Which man? Madeline asked and a confused look passed across her face. That one, the one in the chinos and the button-up. Which one? she asked again, but she was staring right at him. OMG, I gasped, you're looking right at him. Um, babes, there's no man in chinos and a button-up sitting over there. Oh, do you mean that guy? She asked and pointed toward another middle-aged man who was standing nearby. What? No, I said, even more exasperated. Oh my god, you guys, wrong train. Devon interjected all of a sudden and started dragging us out of the door. We stepped onto the platform a half second before the alarm chimed and the doors slid shut. So sorry, loves, we have to go in the other way. He rolled his eyes with more exaggeration than was necessary, and we all crossed the platform to wait for the train heading in the correct direction. I can't believe you didn't see the guy, I said to Madeline as we waited. I'm kind of obsessed with him. Yeah, I don't know. There were a lot of people on the train, so maybe someone was just in my way. There hadn't been anyone standing between Madeline and the man who was just a couple of feet away from us, but I wasn't about to argue about the quick encounter. Oh, wait, I exclaimed, remembering I'd taken a photo of him the night before. I have his photo. I pulled out my phone and opened the photo album. The photo I'd taken the night before was the first in my camera roll, but when I tapped it to enlarge it, it was just a photo of the interior of the train carriage and a row of empty bench seats. That's weird, I said, and swiped to see if I'd accidentally taken multiple shots, but that was the only one. I shrugged and repocketed the phone. Enough about the random man. Let's go get some drinks. Devon and Madeline cheered as the correct train rolled up, and we were off for a night of fun. The night out was a blast, and Devon was right to force us across town to his friend's bar because it was absolutely spectacular. His friends were so sophisticated and interesting, and we laughed and danced, and before we knew it, it was nearing 4am and the bar was closing. (laughs) Even though we got off of work at 11, I'd fully intended to be home and in bed by 2 at the absolute latest, but I'd gotten swept up in the splendor of the night and had no regrets. The next day was going to be rough, no doubt, but it was an experience I'd treasure and so it was totally worth it. I decided to crash at Madeline's since it was much closer to the club, so we stumbled home and I fell asleep on her couch, half sitting up and fully clothed. I woke up soon after, and it was still dark out, so I assumed it was sometime between 5.30 and 6am. The second after I opened my eyes, a phone started ringing at top volume near my head, and I instinctively reached toward the sound to try and make it stop. My hand landed on a landline phone from the 90s at the same instant that my vision adjusted enough to make it out in the semi-darkness. Madeline's apartment was an eclectic mishmash of thrifted and kitschy items, 
and I'm sure she'd purchased the phone at some point to add an ironic touch to the living area. I clumsily pulled the phone from its cradle and held it to my ear. Hello? I croaked, half awake, and not actually expecting a response at the ungodly early hour. It's time to come in now. I felt an almost physical crack form and work its way out from deep inside me. As the call wound through my head, my sanity and stability started to slip through the fracture. I dropped the receiver with a shuddering hand as the call ended and grabbed for the tall glass of water that Madeline had so thoughtfully placed on the side table before heading to bed. I tried my best to steady myself as I gulped long drinks of water, but the incessant beeping of the phone dangling from its cord dominated my nerves and crushed any chance of restoring calm. I knew there was no falling back to sleep, and so once I drained the glass, I gathered my things, scribbled a note to Madeline, and searched my phone for the nearest train home. As I took the stairs down to the lower platform at the station, a part of my brain prickled with the sense that it was taking longer than normal to descend, but I disregarded it as lingering intoxication or the early stages of a hangover. The world was always hazy and dreamlike at that hour, and that, paired with the dizzy hole in my head left by the stack of cocktails I'd enjoyed the night before, left me feeling less than confident that my early morning observations were accurate. I shivered while waiting for the train, and just before it arrived, it finally struck me that I was the only passenger waiting. Which was odd. It was early, but not so early that droves of morning commuters wouldn't be pushing toward the start of their days. I wrapped my arms around me as I stepped through the doorway and into the unusually dim light of the train. The temperature seemed to drop 10 degrees as the doors closed behind me. The light dimmed even further as we entered the tunnel and so I could just barely see the opposite ends of the carriage. I sensed that the man was there before I saw him. His stillness and stuckness were a beacon in the dark train so I turned in his direction and slowly walked towards him. As I approached him, 
His face was showing the first signs of emotion in the days I'd first encountered him. His eyes were registering a deep pain and desperation and were rapidly filling with tears as he continued to stare straight in front of him. His lip quivered just slightly and I got the sense that he was urgently trying to communicate with me but was trapped in place and unable to share the message bubbling just behind his suffering eyes. I stood and stared at him for several minutes, unsure of what to do next, but before I could decide, my phone started ringing in my pocket. I gazed at the man for a moment longer, hoping he'd break through and tell me what to do, and then as if in slow motion, I retrieved my phone and brought it to my face. There were two seconds of silence, and then I was assaulted by the sound of the grandfather clock that had stood watch over me in my beloved grand's living room until she'd passed 15 years earlier. I know I didn't really need to tell you the whole story, but I couldn't help myself. I don't know how long I've been inside, but maybe I just wanted to remember what it was like to be out. To remember what I lost, and all of the simple pleasures of my stolen life. I doubt you'll even get this, but I have to try. The man's warnings came through as gibberish and sounds of human suffering, but I'm hopeful that you can hear me. You're the first person to notice me since I've been inside, and I'm not sure if it's too late by the time you can see us, but I have to try to warn you. I had only two days after I noticed the man for the first time, but I wonder now if there was something I could have done to stop this. Can you change your life in 48 hours? Is that enough time to change the trajectory of an entire life? Now I think so. A lot can happen in a day. My God, I wish I'd at least tried. I don't know if you have time, but you have to start living. And I mean really living. I lied earlier when I said that I was happier at the call center than I had been as a journalist. The truth is that I loved writing more than anything in the world. Nothing fulfilled me more than chasing down a lead and putting the pieces together and losing myself as the story presented itself to me and then passed through me and into the world. 
I love curiosity and words and the human condition and, and danger and mystery and everything that makes up that crazy job. But I was afraid. I was afraid that I wasn't good enough. I was afraid that I'd fail. I was afraid that other journalists thought I was a fraud or a joke or an amateur. And so I hid. I hid from my soul's calling. I holed up in that dark call center and buried my dreams and passions and potential and simply survived. I'd convinced myself that my simple life was really living. That I'd been too wrapped up in the corporate grind before and that I was happier living simply and sharing my time with my darling Madeline and the various other characters that passed through. But I lied. I lied and my dream died and now I'm suffering the consequences. I need you to understand that life's too precious. It's too important and powerful and you have to live before it's too late. Find your soul's calling and run headfirst toward it, screaming and clawing and insisting that you succeed. You have to try and fail and explore and kick and punch and embrace and endure and then do it all again while never letting your truest love out of your sight. Fear is a virus and they can smell it. They will follow its scent to the death of a dream and they will lie in wait, watching until all of your goals and ambitions lay crumbling to dust along the path of time gone by. And if you refuse to live and don't recognize that dream, they'll give it to someone who will. It's too precious to waste and there are consequences for rejecting your purpose. Awful, ungodly, unending consequences for abandoning your dreams. Please believe me. Please live. You saw me for the first time today so there might still be time. Please. Please. You have to live. Please live before they bring you inside. Please. was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Benjamin Chandler. For more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at Patreon backslash Please Leave Pod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please Leave Pod. Our email is Please Leave Pod at gmail.com and our website is Please Leave Pod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. <laughs>